Church, let me invite you to open the scriptures with me this morning to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, as we continue looking at this portion of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to use a, a pew Bible, and you can find this text on page 993. But this morning, as we join uh, sister churches today in praying for persecuted believers around the world, uh, travel with me to Philadelphia. Not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia of Asia Minor, the latter part of the first century, a place where persecution is real. You see, like Christians in Pakistan in 2018, Christians in Philadelphia in AD 95 were a minority. They were there, but they were opposed. They were there, but they were ostracized. They were there, but they were under attack, not only from the Roman authorities, but also from the very people who claimed to be the people of God. Sizable population of uh, non-Christian Jews lived in Philadelphia, and they so rejected the idea that Jesus could be the Messiah that they had kicked Jewish Christians out of their synagogue. The door had been quite literally shut on them. Christians weren't welcome in the very place where the scriptures were read and taught. Christ's people there were discouraged. They were disheartened. And they needed to hear from their Lord. And so he spoke to them. So let's hear what he said. As you find your place in Revelation chapter 3, let me invite you to join me standing for the reading of God's word. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7, Jesus says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have. So that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we have gathered this morning to hear from you. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what your spirit says to your church. So, Lord, speak to us now. Guide us that we might rightly follow you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, church, you may be seated. Well, unlike some of the other congregations that Jesus addressed, this church doesn't need correction. They need encouragement. Unlike the church in Sardis that we considered Last week, this church uh, doesn't impress their neighbors. Ridiculed and rejected by the populace who worshipped the Roman gods and the Roman kings, but also by religious Jews uh, who failed to believe in Jesus. 
They were criticized and ostracized from both sides. These brothers and sisters need a reminder of the glorious king they serve. And so he speaks. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. The phrase key of David recalls an ancient text from Isaiah 22, an oracle from God concerning his people. At the time, God's people were rebellious and unrepentant, but the Lord had plans for them, and so he spoke to them. He spoke to them about a future day, and he said, verse 20 of Isaiah chapter 22, In that day I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your, and here's a, this is a reference to a, a, a current official at the time, a steward, a guy named Shepna, who was described before this text as a selfish and unfaithful servant. And so God says, I will clothe Eliakim with Shepna's robe and fasten Shepna's sash around him and hand Shepna's authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. Verse 22, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So essentially, because of this guy's faithfulness, because of uh, Eliakim's faithfulness to God, God says that he's going to promote him to the position of steward, meaning that he has authority to make decisions on behalf of the king. Those he lets in can come in, and those he keeps out, he keeps out. By portraying Jesus this way, the Bible is saying that Jesus is the one who holds the key of David. John is emphasizing the supreme authority that Jesus has to admit folks in to God's kingdom. If he lets you in, no one else can shut the door. If he shuts the door, there is no other way in. I think the open door here is the door standing open of chapter 4, verse 1. After this, John looked, and there before him was a door standing open in heaven. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. You see, though unbelieving Jews in Philadelphia may have shut Christians out of the synagogue, Jesus says to them, you are welcome in my kingdom. Follow me to my house. Respond to my invitation to enter heaven. See, I have placed an open door before you that no one can shut. Friends, Jesus welcomes the weak into his kingdom. Jesus welcomes the weak into his kingdom. Jesus says, verse 8, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word And have not denied my name. Weak in the eyes of the world. Probably a short membership role and an unimpressive budget. Lacking material resources and political connections. Yet steadfast in their faith. Devoted to Jesus and his word. Knowing full well what Christ Jesus meant when he said. Matthew chapter 11 verse 28. Come to me all You who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
You see, the message of Christ is the message of Philadelphia Community Church. It is the message they have believed. It is the message they are proclaiming. They're failing to impress the world. Perhaps they're failing to employ savvy marketing strategies and to implement the latest in church growth trends, but they are victorious in the eyes of their Savior. In the midst of pain, they heard our Lord repeat what He had said to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Church, the Bible is abundantly clear that the Christian life cannot be lived by sheer dependence upon oneself or dependence upon personal strength or determination, but only by dependence upon God's power. If you want to live a life that is pleasing to Him, then depend upon God's power. Depend upon Him. Depend upon the Lord's power. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Friends, we are weak. We are weak, but our Savior is strong. Life here on this earth can often be too much. Too much for us to handle. Too much pain, too depressing, too difficult, too tiring, too lonely. Unless you know the one who holds the key of David. The greatness of a church, according to writes Sam Storms, is, is measured by the size of the Savior whom it faithfully honors and passionately praises and confidently trusts. The big church, he says, is any church that boasts in a big God. Church, how big is your God? How strong is your Savior? Is He sufficient? Is He worthy? Is He trustworthy? Jesus commends those who trust and proclaim Him. He commends those who trust and proclaim Him. Verse 8, I know that you have a little strength. I know that you're weak. I know that you're despised. I know that you're unimpressive in the eyes of those around you, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Pressured to bow before the King, to minimize Jesus, to dismiss the cross, to compromise their commitment, because a life, a life lived for Jesus Christ in, in Philadelphia uh, didn't pan out too comfortably. And yet here, these believers continue trusting and proclaiming the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, because Christ alone is holy and true. And to say that Jesus is holy is to say that He's distinct. He's incomparable. To say that Jesus is true is to say that He's genuine and He's faithful and He's trustworthy. See, though they faced severe opposition, believers in Philadelphia trusted and proclaimed Jesus because they had considered who He was and what He said, and they believed Him. They believed Jesus. As simple as it sounds, those who believe Jesus live for Jesus. When, when we don't live for Jesus, when we go our own way, when we reject to follow, we reject Him or fail to follow Him, we're essentially saying, Jesus, I don't believe You. My way is better. Do you believe Jesus? Do you believe Jesus? Do you trust Him enough to surrender your life to Him, to keep His Word, and to proclaim His name no matter the cost? Carefully consider Christ's words. 
carefully consider Christ's words, consider what he says. Though many take a nominal approach to Christianity, we consider this last week, we looked at that idea last week, and many take a, a lukewarm approach to following Jesus Christ, a topic that we'll consider next week. Neither of those loose associations with Jesus Christ fits logic or reason. Think about that. Either Jesus told the truth or he was a liar. He is the Savior who gave his life away for the sins of the world or he was a crazy man who thought that he was more than he was. He is the Son of God in human flesh or he, or he was the founder of a cult. Friends, carefully consider Christ's words. Don't be neutral when it comes to Jesus Christ. Consider what he says. For if he is who he says he is, if he is who the scriptures declare him to be, then he is worthy of our lives even unto death. He's worthy of our worship on Sunday and every day. He's worthy of our coming and our confessing, our giving and our going, our singing and our sharing. Trust and proclaim Jesus Christ, whether the church is popular or persecuted. For Christ will vindicate those who follow him. He will vindicate those who follow him. To the suffering yet faithful church of Philadelphia, Jesus says, verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Jesus has strong words for those who claim to be his people, yet adamantly oppose his people. By persecuting Christians, they are serving God's enemy. Like Saul before his conversion, like Saul of Tarsus, they're misguided and mean-spirited and only a vision of or a word from the exalted Christ could pierce their hearts, produce faith in the Messiah and provide new life in the Spirit. Like all unbelievers, like unbelievers today, like unbelievers in Birmingham or Pakistan or anywhere, like all unbelievers, they need to see Jesus. They need to hear from Him. Because the holy and true one who holds the key of David will vindicate those who follow him, those who continue trusting and proclaiming him, sharing the gospel truth with a dying world filled with people who will either repent and receive new life in Jesus Christ here and now, or they will cower before him in fear upon his return and acknowledge his strength and his power, his worth and his love. Those who know Christ... Those who now know the Christ who is holy and true cannot help but long to serve Him. And so that is what we do. We want to serve Christ. We want to spend our lives to serve our King. And Christ strengthens those who serve Him. He strengthens those who serve Him. This is good news. This is the encouragement that any persecuted church needs to hear. He says, verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Given the popularity of the pre-tribulation rapture that has flooded Christian literature in the last century, really just the last century or so, many automatically read such a reference here, a reference to a, a rapture of believers out of this world before an intense time of Suffering on earth. 
I certainly could be wrong in this, but I think to do so misreads this text. I think to do so reads more into this than what Christ is, is saying here. I think it fails to take what Christ is saying to the church to heart because before this is a message for us today, it is it was a message to Philadelphia believers in the first century. Furthermore, inhabitants of the earth or earth dwellers, as it reads in some translations, is really a stock phrase, a significant phrase throughout the book of Revelation to refer to unbelievers, specifically to those who persecute Christians. This is a picture of judgment on unbelievers. And the wording here is much like the wording of Jesus' prayer for his disciples. It's recorded in John chapter 17, the same John who wrote Revelation. Like the only other place, I think, in the New Testament where the same phraseology is used here, where Jesus prays in John 17, 15, My prayer is not that you, praying to the Father, not that you take them out of the world, not that you take my people out of the world, but that you protect them or keep them. Same word. Keep them from the evil one. So I don't think, something many folks do, and that's fine, I don't think Revelation 3.10 is a message of rapture, but of guarding and keeping. A message of assurance and eternal hope in the midst of ongoing suffering that plagues believers between the first and the second advent of Jesus Christ. After all, John described himself as our brother and companion in the suffering, or in the tribulation, same word, and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. So here's the, here's the bottom line. Jesus doesn't offer us the removal of pain here. Jesus doesn't offer the promise of, of popularity here or even of a peaceful death here, but He offers something far better and longer lasting than any of those temporary things. Jesus offers eternal security and lasting identity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Lord over all, the Messiah, He offers eternal security and lasting identity. He comforts suffering believers with these words. He says, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, verse 11, so that no one will take your crown. He says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write my name on them. In other words, he's going to claim his people as his very own. A claim that can never, ever be erased or taken away. We can rejoice in the lasting love of the Lord. We can rejoice in the lasting love of the Lord. Essentially, I think Jesus says this. He says, you may suffer here. He says, you may be small, you may be weak, you may be seemingly insignificant here. You may be ridiculed or ostracized, you may be opposed, you may face rejection and insult, you may face disease and depression, you may face heartache and hurt, but I am coming soon. Continue the course. Follow me. Hold on to the joy of salvation, the assurance of forgiveness, and the life of trusting, trusting me. For my love for you is unmatched. The home that I am preparing for you in heaven is unimaginable. The position you will take in my heavenly kingdom is eternal, for you will comprise an indispensable position 
a pillar in my temple, meaning you will be forever with me in the presence of the Most High God. Not indispensable, he says, because I need you, but because you need me and you'll always have me. No one will discount or dispense of you. For my door will always be open to you. You will be mine and I will be yours forever and ever and ever. Eternal security and lasting identity. This is good news. News even suffering believers can rejoice in. News of Christ's everlasting love. A love that I think the author of Hebrews must have had in mind when he wrote Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. He writes, he says, Therefore, believers, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, Hear what he says next. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that was set before Jesus Christ, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We are in the car this past week, and my son noticed a little token, a little plastic toy coin that had come off a metal uh, that he had in the cup holder of his car seat and pulled it out and, uh, to qualify with what he said by saying that he was at the time uh, on a uh, bacon high uh, from our monthly men's breakfast here. And he had jo- joined me uh, Friday morning and he loves bacon probably more than candy and he doesn't eat it too often so when he does uh, you never know what he's going to say but he glances down at that cross he sees it on the coin and he he grins this cheesy childish grin he says daddy jesus died on the cross as if he got a question right he said yes son he did this smirk continues and sort of takes ownership of what he said and he says Daddy, Jesus died on my cross. And I didn't know what to say. Because I pray that one day that four-year-old knows the truth he spoke. Friends, Jesus died on my cross. Jesus died on your cross. The Bible says Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him. A joy that stems, that flows, that grows from an unimaginable love that He has for you and for me. An unfailing and never-ending love. Because He wanted to save us. He wanted to make us right. He wanted us to live with Him and enjoy Him forever and ever and ever. I don't know if you can see this from where you are, but this is this is a nail that a church member gave me a couple of years ago. I think a friend of his had had made this. Looks like it's dipped in blood. It's got a little tag around the top of it. It says, "The key to heaven, 
hung on a nail. The key to heaven hung on a nail. Friend, if you are trusting anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ to save you, then turn and trust the one today who opens the door. The one who is the door. The one that holds the master key. The one who is the master of life. The one who extends the invitation to whosoever will believe in Him to accept eternal life through Him. There is no other way. Turn and trust Jesus today. And if you're a believer who has already claimed Christ as your own, you're striving to follow Christ and you feel bombarded by the challenges of walking with Him, the challenge of patient endurance here, Christ says to you, I am coming soon for you. I'm coming soon. You see, the message here to suffering Christians is this. You are almost home. You're almost home. Jesus says, believers, you are almost home. And what a glorious home it is going to be. A place of eternal security and lasting identity. So Christian, as you live for Jesus here, look toward your eternal home. Look toward your eternal home. Fix your gaze on the prize. The prize of Jesus Christ, that is. The prize of life in Him. Forgiveness and satisfaction and delight and reconciliation to God. The provision and protection of, of God in the flesh. Of Jesus Christ with you forever and ever and ever. That's the perspective that we need to navigate this life. We need to fix our eyes on Christ. For soon we will be with Him. Friends, soon we will see Jesus. Soon we will truly know Him. Soon we will be with Christ forever. But until then, may we live by and proclaim His grace. The Bible concludes with these words. Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. John, the human author of this text, responds in this way. He says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then he provides a message to his recipients, a message to us. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. Amen. Father, we we know that your grace is with us. And Lord, we know that your grace is sufficient. We know that your grace is abundant. And Lord, that your grace covers over our sins. Father, we thank you for being the God who extends salvation to us. We are unworthy and undeserving, yet in your great and sovereign, divine and kind plan, Lord, you extend forgiveness of sins to us. Lord, you are just and the one who justifies us by doing for us what we can never do on our own. Father, we thank you for Jesus the Christ, the 
perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Father, we thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for joy and delight in Christ. Lord, may we delight in you. May we spend our lives, may we live our lives clinging to and serving Christ because we know that life in Christ is better than anything we could run after here. Father, may you lead us, may you protect us, may you guide us to respond today and every day in a a way that glorifies the name and reputation of our Savior. For you are worthy. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.